Well, welcome to K2. <laughs> I got some more of that coming tonight, so get ready. Hey, um, my name is Mike Rutledge. I'm the director of arts here, and uh, I'm really looking forward to sharing what I have, what I believe God has asked me to share with you tonight. And, um, you know, you watch a video like this, and you can have some pretty strong reactions to it. You know, the first, uh, I wonder if, if you're honest, you're sitting out there, and if you think about it for a minute, how many of you go, I think I know someone who needs a guy like that in their life. Anyone out there thinking that? Yeah. Most of us, if we're honest, probably do. How many of you think, you know what, maybe I could use a person like that? <laughs> yeah, you know, mostly, though, how many of you think that was horrible? I would not want any part of that. Yeah, most, right. And because the guy's so judgmental and he's really, you know, laying into the guy and, you know, it wasn't a very <clears throat> pleasant experience overall. And we think about judging, and we don't really have a positive reaction to it, right? Someone's going to come in and tell us to change a behavior that we're particularly fond of, right? It's not really something we look forward to. But the fact of the matter is, all day, every day, we go about the business of making judgments. We make them about ourselves, where we, you know, should I eat that? Should I, should I do that? What was I thinking? You know, stuff like that. We make them about others. Are they really going to wear that? Are they really going to eat that? What were they thinking? Same, same thing. We do it all day, every day. And yet somehow, when it comes to the Bible and it comes to uh, spirituality, all of a sudden, judging becomes taboo. And actually, I would say it's probably even more than that because we have a lot of phrases that we use, uh, we kind of throw around, you know, I'm not judging because clearly judging is bad or don't judge, Right? <laughs> So we, we kind of have a negative spin on what we think judging is. And we're in this series called Here Comes the Judge. And just as a matter of review, week one, Dave talked about the God of justice and we looked into God's nature and character of his, his righteousness and holiness in spite of our not unholiness and our lack of righteousness and how in the end he's the ultimate judge of our souls. And then the following week, uh, we looked at the flip side of that, which was uh, the God who justifies where we looked at God's loving nature and his sacrificial nature that in spite of our lack of holiness and his complete perfection, he makes a way for us to be in relationship with him. And then last week, if you were here, you heard Dave uh, Nelson give a message called A People Who Do Not Judge. And he looked at how self-righteousness and uh, in the tr- self-righteousness uh, creates judgment from people towards people and how it causes divisions in the church. And this week, I'm giving you a message called A People Who Do Judge, because Dave Nelson was incorrect, and I'm going to fix his theology today. So, you're very blessed to have me. Uh, Seriously, um, the reality is that we are instructed both not to judge and to judge. And what I want to do is, as and tonight, in the, in the few minutes we have together, I want to talk about the biblical, a biblical context for how judgment happens. And the way I want to approach this is by just looking at a particular passage, a passage, the First Corinthians, but mostly chapters 4 through 6, and just kind of teach through that passage to help us understand what does it mean when God calls us to judge others. And I think that's really important... When you, when you teach through passages to understand the background of the passages. And so 1 Corinthians, just so you know, was written in the 50s, like the actual 50s, not like 1950, like 50 AD. Yeah, like 50. 
Yeah. Uh, and it was written to a church in Corinth or Athens, Greece area. And what we know about Corinth is that it was a pretty morally bankrupt area, right? They had the Temple of Aphrodite was there, which was a highly sexualized uh, worship experience of some sort. They had a thousand heroduli, which are um, like consecrated prostitutes that were of free, free use to the, to the worshipers there. We know that they had a lot of corruption and uh, a lot of vice going on in there. A term came out from, uh, a term was coined, uh, Corinthiazomai, which was uh, to act like a Corinthian. And basically, it was synonymous with uh, prostitution and debauchery. It's kind of like, uh, you know, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, right? It was, the, it was the Vegas of the 50s in Greece, okay? So that's what's going on, and Paul plants a church in the midst of this population, okay? But the, what, what gets even stickier is that this church had some pretty substantial problems in and of itself, Problems that were so substantial that people who did not call themselves followers of Christ, people outside of the Christian faith, were actually looking in at the Christian faith, the Corinthian church, and going, that's messed up. And so four things. One, we have the account of a man who's having a promiscuously sexual, uh, illicitly sexual relationship with his stepmom. We have um, some division in the church where people are spiritualizing the leader that they want to follow and trying to make spiritual judgments on non-spiritual stuff and saying, because I follow this guy, I'm more spiritual. And they had all... The other thing we know about Corinth is it was... uh, uh, Athens and Greece in particular were very, very litigious in nature. Very, very litigious in nature. And Aristophanes, he was a uh, a Greek uh, writer, and he he writes uh, of one of his characters who's who's shown a map, and he says, hey, find, uh, find Greece on here. And when he's shown Greece, he says, that can't be Greece. I don't see any, any court cases going on. And so it's a very, it was a very, very, very legally minded and like having, uh, you know, suing everyone, suing everyone. That was going on. And in the church, what they found was that peop- believers, two people calling each other brother and sister in Christ, believers were suing each other over crazy stuff, trying to rip each other off, basically. We also find that at the communion celebration, which we do here just a couple of ways, well, they did it a different way, theirs were turning into decadent, drunken parties that really had very little to do with spirituality. And so Paul is writing to this church to kind of help them understand that they have some problems that need to be addressed. He was going to judge them. What I want to do is I want to look at this passage, these, these, these few chapters, and look at six things, basically. The who, what, how, where, when, and why of judging. So that we can walk away tonight understanding when we're to judge someone, who it is and how it is and why it is and when and where and all that kind of stuff. And before we do that, I'd just love to ask you guys to join me in praying. Heavenly Father, we are uh, oh, we're grateful that you love us so deeply. We're so thankful for you setting the Spirit, and we ask the Holy Spirit to come into this moment to guide my words, to guide our hearts, prepare us to receive, reveal truth to us, convict us where we need conviction. 
I pray that uh, tonight we would leave this place, not with just knowledge, but with something that can transform our lives and our community to be more like you. Thanks, thank you for this opportunity. May you be glorified tonight. We ask this in your name. Amen. So I want to dive right into this passage, and I want to start with the who. Uh, not, not the band, the who. The who we should judge. Okay? They were from the 60s. Anyway, uh, I want us to dive right in who we should not judge. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. It says this. So, don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praises do. And I just got to tell you, if you have your phone or uh, Android or whatever, or iPhone, you can go pull up the U app and it'll have all the verses on it. We'll have them on the screens or if you need a Bible, we have them there too. So I just, I'm going to pile through a ton of scripture tonight. And so I just uh, really want to encourage you to follow along as we do this, however you want to do that. But so what we find in this first passage, verses four and five, we find two things that we're not supposed to judge. The first one is we'll call darkness. He says, he says, for he will bring our darkest secrets to light and reveal our private motives. The first thing is darkness. What I mean by darkness is basically he's saying don't judge when you don't have all the details. Have you ever found yourself making judgments on people when you only have about half the facts? Because you can figure the rest out on your own, can't you? See, but the problem is we can be misled and it creates greater problems. The other implication that he's making here is he's back to week one of this series where he's talking about God as the one who is our final judge. Don't make it before your time because you know what? In the end, God decides, so it's not up to us to decide the spiritual fate of people. The second thing he talks about, you see, he will reveal motives. We're also instructed not to judge the motives of others because, again, clearly, we think we know motives. I know this guy. I know what he's trying to do to me. I know it. I know it. I know it. But you don't know it. You think you know, and you can be wrong. And when we start judging motives, it can create all kinds of problems that don't need to happen. Those are the first two things, darkness and motives. The third thing is really, really interesting. We find in, as we continue reading chapter 4, verse 6 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, I have used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. If you pay attention to what I have quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of another. All right, what's going on here? Now, he spent the chapter before talking about this faction in the church with Apollos and Paul. And what's happening is people are going like this. They're saying, hey, well, I was baptized by Paul, and that makes me more spiritual. And like, no, 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 I've been baptized by Apollos. And, he's, and they started putting spiritual values on preferences and prejudices. That's what he's talking about here. Don't, he's, and he says, I use Paul, I use Apollos and myself as an example. See, you guys are dividing the church and calling it spiritual and you're basing it on preferences. This happens all the time. The church is wrong. It happens here. Some person will come up to me. <laughs> oh, this is a funny joke. Someone, people come up to me and they say, they'll say to me, uh, hey, we need to do hymns. Hymns are, hymns are way more spiritual. And someone, I'll turn around and someone will go, we need to do speed metal worship. It's more spiritual. And then I told, and Justin, <laughs> Justin Lord, one of our drummers goes, so we settle on contemporary Christian. Oh, nice. <laughs> anyway, but the reality is speed metal worship and hymns are both great. They're just preferences. And what happens is people enter into assigning spiritual value to their preferences because it puts them in a self-righteous place to put judgment on others. 
And he's saying, don't do that. That's the third thing. And the fourth one is pretty interesting. I don't know if you know this, but I'm going to pick up in chapter 5. We're going to jump ahead of chapter. Chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, it says this. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sin, period. All right? Now, so now we know we should not indulge with people or not, not uh, be around people who indulge in sin, right? Well, let's keep reading. But I wasn't talking about the unbelievers. Not the ones who indulge in sexual sin or agree or cheat people or worship idols. You'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. Very, very important distinction. We are not called to stand in judgment of those who do not call themselves followers of Jesus. Whose job is that? God's. We love to play God, but we're not supposed to. What we are supposed to do with those people who don't believe is live a life engaging our culture, sharing our faith, being prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have, living an example without compromising our behaviors so that people can see what the true gospel is all about. That's what we're supposed to do with unbelievers, not judge them. And you can see that here in the church today and apparently way back in the 50s, this problem existed then as well. Which leads us to the question, well, then who do we judge? I found this really interesting. Skip forward another chapter, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and it says this. When one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Don't you realize that someday the believers will judge the world, and since you're going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. So again, going back to the fact that there were uh, all this... All this Legal, this legal mess that's going on in the church. And he says, what you need to understand, I'm not going to go into great detail, in the future, one day after Jesus comes back and those who call themselves followers of Christ are, are dwelling with him in heaven, you, believers, are going to be the ones who judge the world and judge the angels. So we ought to be able to be prepared to make judgments here on earth. So we're going to judge angels. The second group of people we find, is, as we keep reading in, in chapter 6, We'll pick up in verse 4, and it says this. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why go to outside judges who are not respected by the church? I am saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide on these issues, but instead, instead one believer sues another right in front of the unbelievers? The second group of people that we are to judge are believers in dispute. And it's clearly referring to legal matters here. So you say, well, we have courts. We do have courts. And they had courts then. I want you to understand something, that there is a law that is ordained by man, the law, the legal system, and there is a, a, an authority that's set up by God, and it's called the church. And those who, those who call themselves followers of Christ are to submit themselves to the authority of the church, even in legal matters. So what does that mean? That means if you have a dispute with someone and you go to the courts first, 
You are saying to God, I value the authority established by man over the authority established by God. Now, I'm not saying we should never use the legal system. But what I am saying is when there are disputes between believers, the first step is go to the church leadership, Lad and Dave, not me, and seek help. Seek someone to help mitigate the issue and the disagreements or the legal matters that you have first. Seek their counsel and their advice and where we can go with this next. Very, very important. And the third group of people that we are supposed to judge and where I'm going to focus the rest of my talk today is found in chapter 5, verse 12. It says this, point blank, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, unbelievers, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. We're judging, and this, I want to make an important distinction, a couple important distinctions. Those pants are a sin. No, no, those are a bad fashion choice. When we're talking about sin, we're talking about something. The word that's used there is krino from, from the Greek, and it means, uh, or I'm sorry, it means it's hamartano, which is to do wrong and usually to act against the will and the law of God. This is what it's talking about when, when we're talking about sin, okay? Not, well, I can't believe the way they spend money. No, that's a bad, bad decision. It's bad stewardship. That's not sin, okay? And when we're talking about these disputes, we are to judge. This is the what we judge now that we know the who. Unbelievers who are sinning, okay? Very, very important distinction. What I want to do, let's talk about the how real quickly. Because I think, I want to give you five things here. And if you write nothing else down today, I would really, really encourage you to write these five things down and take them home with you. I want to give you... First, five general rules of judging Christians who are in sin, judging other Christians who you find to be sinning, okay? And the first is this. I'm going to tell you five places where you need to go. First, you need to go to the mirror. If you were here last week, you heard Dave talk about people trying to remove a speck from someone else's eye when they have a beam in their own. And you need to understand that until your life is straight before God, you have no business trying to correct others' sin issues. Get yourself right before God first. And when you're looking in the mirror, be honest with yourself to check your motivation and why you actually want to address this person's sin. Because if it's about you, that's a problem as well. So the first place you want to go is go to the mirror. Second place, go to the Bible. There's this term that I've become aware of this year, and it's a really cool term. It's called gospel fluency. Now, gospel fluency, what we like to do, let me say it this way, what we like to do is we like to take God's word and turn it into a life condiment. So what do I mean by that? Okay, well, you sit down at a table, and you have all these condiments, right? You have ketchup, you have mustard, and you go, well, I'll take a little ketchup. Don't like the mustard, pepper, but not the salt. Tabasco, you get the point? We pick and choose the things we want that complete us, right? See, but the problem with that is that's not how the Bible was written. It's not, it's not a buffet of pick and choose The Bible was written as a guidebook for every single decision you make in your life. 
This is what gospel fluency is. When you are making a decision, you run it through God's word to see what he speaks to. And I'll just tell you this. Every single decision you have to make is addressed in God's word. Every single one of them. And you don't get to pick and choose. You just do what God's word says. That's gospel fluency, living a life that's driven by God's word. So the second thing we, when we're going to judge people, we need to go to God's word first and understand, is this, first of all, is this really sin? Does God's word speak to this? Because if God's word is silent on this issue, you should be too, quite frankly. And if it's called sin in the Bible, then you can then enter into the judgment and talk to that person about it. So the second place is going to the Bible. The third place is going to God for wisdom. James chapter one says, if you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you. Here's why I tell you you should go to God for wisdom. So many people can see sin in other people, but because of the way, the unwise way they address the issue, the effectiveness of the dialogue becomes pointless. You see it all the people holding hate signs. God hates this and God hates that. Really? Is that what's going to change my life? Knowing how much God hates me? Seek wisdom so we know how to address the issue in a godly way. And the third thing is, or the fourth thing is this. Go in grace and truth. Now, implied there is that you're going to the person because typically what can happen is we have an issue with someone and we think it's sin and so we go over here to these four people and talk to them about this person's sin, right? Does them no good? Does them no good? Does me no good? But if we go to this person, and the second part of this is going in grace and truth. Typically, people are either very gracious or very truthful. If you're very truthful, you just go in and you lay it out there, man. I'm gonna, you're going to know everything you're doing wrong, blah, blah, bam. And you feel like you got hit with a two by four. And if you're gracious, you never have any idea what the person's thinking because, well, I shouldn't, I'm just, I can't. I'm going to love them. I'm, just lo- I'm not going to say anything to them because I'm just going to love them. Just, just love them. How is that person helped when they're living in sin and we can't even speak truth to them? And how is that person helped if we can't speak it graciously? So go in grace and truth. That's the fourth thing. And the fifth thing is this. Go regardless of who the person is. See, one of the things we do, some, we, 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 we tend to evaluate, well, that's a very important person. I, shouldn't, I don't know if I should go to them because they're, they're very important. And uh, It's not, no, we're supposed to go and tell them the truth and grace. Or we go, well, you know, it's just so-and-so. Pfft. I'm not going to go to them. I don't know. Self-righteous. Or how about this? And I'll just raise my hand. Yes, I've done this. Well, what's the point? They're not going to change anyway, right? Here's the problem with that. We're not judged on what the other person does. We're judged on our obedience to do what we're supposed to do. So me making an evaluation on what I should do based on what someone else is going to do is not only ungodly, it's just the flawed thinking. So those are the five general principles. Go, go to the mirror, go to the Bible, go to God for wisdom, go in grace and truth, and go regardless of who the person is. I love this story. Um, I was preparing this message. My wife says, hey, you've got to tell this, this particular Joyce Meyer story. It's so funny. She, uh, now, Joyce Meyer is a, uh, 
nationally renowned uh, Christian uh, speaker, teacher. She does conferences all around the world, or well, at least around the United States, and speaks to tens of thousands of people at one time. And uh, so she tells this story where, where her husband's name is Dave, and she, she says, you know, I began praying that Dave would change. Her husband, I prayed, and I prayed, God, change Dave, God, change Dave. For years and years and years, I prayed, God, change Dave. And then it finally happened. One morning, I woke up and I prayed, and God said, Dave's not the problem. And so she says, and I thought to myself, well, what is it then? Because there's only the two of us. I tell you that story because as you process through these five steps, that very same thing may happen to you. You get to one of the steps, maybe you look in the mirror and you realize, oh, I got some stuff I got to deal with. Or maybe you get to the second step and you go, you know what, that's actually not a sin issue. And it can happen all the way down. I just want to encourage you, use these five steps and just know that you, God will honor it. I want to just talk real briefly on the where. And the where is really simple. Complete privacy. Unless it needs to be opened up beyond that. I want to look at Matthew 18. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17 says this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Step one, if you see someone that's in sin, you've gone through these five steps, go to that person and talk to them. And what does it say? If they listen to you, what's happened? Case closed. You're good to go. You just helped that person. If they don't listen, it says, verse 16, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So you take a couple other people, you make sure you're doing, you're, you're doing it the right way. It's established that, that you're going through, and the person either by willful neglect or uh, outright defiance decides I'm not going to change my behavior. I, I get it, it's sin, but I'm still going to keep doing it. Next step, it says, if they won't listen, tell it to the church. Again, that doesn't mean you walk up on the stage and go, hey, I talked to so-and-so about this thing, and they're continuing to do it, and I think you all need to know. All right, good. All right, let's get out of here. Not helpful. You should go to the leadership and, again, invite them into the process of helping resolve the issue. And then it says, if they won't listen to church, you have to cast them out. It's a terrible, terrible, oh, this phrase, church discipline. I want to talk about why that's important in just a second. But I'll tell you a story that happened. I went to Kensington in uh, the Detroit area uh, before we moved out here. And they had a situation like this to, to demonstrate the, why, how pri- the privacy issue works. So there was a person at the church who was uh, misleading people with, with, with stuff that was untrue about himself. He was telling, and I'm telling many people many falsehoods about himself. And as he was telling, he, he was telling people this, and uh, they went to him and said, knock it off, that's not cool, that's sin, that's wrong, you can't do that. Well, it didn't stop, and so they took more people and they talked to him. And then eventually what they realized is that enough people in the church had been affected or had, had heard his stories that they said, we need to do something about this. And they had to bring it before the church and respectfully say, hey, 
Here's an issue you need to be aware of. This person is misleading you and deceiving you, and you need to understand. That's the where. Privacy at all costs unless necessary. And I say it like this. No one needs to know the information unless they need to know the information. And I just think, how would I like it to be handled about me? If I'm sinning, how would I like to be treated? So that's the where. Again, the steps are first you go to the person privately, then take a couple people with you, and then if that doesn't work, talk to the church, and eventually the church will decide if that person needs to have church discipline where they're asked to leave the church. And I want to talk about the why this church discipline thing. This is the last point. And I think it's the most exciting for me in church discipline because typically speaking, that's, this is not fun stuff, right? It's not really all that fun. In one word, the why of church discipline, one word is restoration. I want you to understand that if your motivation in judging someone is anything other than the the other person's restoration, you have bad motives, okay? The first thing we can restore is we can restore the reputation of Christianity, and that's what happened in Corinthians. You know, uh, Mahatma Gandhi says this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Wow. Wow. That's terrible. To understand that what Christ offers and the way we live are so different that we actually are unattractive to the world. And this is what was happening in Corinth. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. Now, it's pretty interesting. Again, he says, you got this stuff going on. This guy is uh, with his step... He's having intimate sexual relationships with his stepmom. And then what's he say next? And you are so proud. What does he do? What? You're so proud. Here's the thing. They're going, we're Christians. Yes. But not a single person would address what's going on in the church that is an obvious glaring problem to the point where the people who do not call themselves believers are looking in and going, now that's jacked up. Salt and light, baloney. That's messed up. I want no part of it. The reputation of the gospel was being destroyed because of the behavior of this individual and the behavior of those who chose not to address it for the namesake of the gospel. You have the same, and I'm not going to go into this, but the same in the court cases where they're actually suing each other or trying to rip each other off and taking it out into the public court cases where, where, where these non-Christian judges were making judgments on them and uh, looking at that and going, wow, again, jacked up, I want no part of it. So the first thing that we restore is the name of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's get the black eye off of Jesus, huh? He doesn't need to walk around with a black eye. The next thing, though, is it restores relationship between people. Again, the point is restoration. I'll just tell you a quick story. Dave told a story like this last week as well. I remember this person came to me, and they said, Mike, I need to talk to you. We sat down, and they said, hey, I just need to share with you that uh, a while ago you said this. And, uh, and uh, so what that meant was this, and, and uh, it really, really crushed me. And what was awesome is I said, well, sorry that I said that first. Secondly, that's not what I meant. And I was able to explain to this person what I meant. And they're like, oh, great. That's fantastic. Okay, good. 
and it restored our relationship because the person followed the biblical model of coming to me. The problem is a year later, and sometimes it takes time to process through. We missed a year of relationship, but the good news is we're back in relationship now. And when we act according to God's word with gospel fluency, doing what the Bible tells us to do, relationship is restored. The reputation of the gospel is restored. And the third thing is this. And band, you guys can come on up as we close out here. The third thing is this, that we restore the person's relationship with God. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 says this, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back will save that person from death and bring about forgiveness of many sins. When we judge according to the gospel, according to the biblical model, what happens is we help people turn their lives around and start pursuing the right relationship that they're called into. I have a friend back in Michigan, and he always used this quote, not my problem, not a problem. It's a really funny quote, isn't it? The problem is it doesn't work in the Christian faith. Because once you enter into the Christian faith, you become part of a family, and as part of the family, we are called to help each other in our relationship towards Christ. And when you see someone in sin, like this person in, in the church at Corinth, and you do nothing about it, you're actually ignoring what God calls us to do, and you're actually not loving them, because you're allowing them to destroy their life. The final thing, the final verse is this. James 4.17, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. So if you have been, someone has talked to you and they've addressed the sin issue in your life and you know what to do and you're not doing it, you're continuing in sin, that's bad. That takes the next step. It means we need to go to the next step in our process. But also, for the, all of you sitting here tonight, I've just explained from God's word what the biblical model for judging sin in the lives of others is. And if you're aware of sin in someone else's life and you refuse to enter into that relationship through dialogue, you too are sinning because you cannot allow your brother and sister in Christ to destroy their life. We're going to enter into musical worship and I'm going to invite our greeters to come as we close out. We're going to take our offering. And Before we do though, I just want to challenge you with something. I feel like um, I said at the beginning what, what hit me was the idea that I don't want this to be an informative time where we walk away with more knowledge, right? I want this to be a time where we as a church, a body of believers that gather in this local place and call ourselves brothers and, Christi- brothers and sisters, that this can actually unite us and draw us closer to God and closer to each other. So I want you to just close your eyes for just a second. And I want you to ask, because the Holy Spirit will lead you. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit this question. Is there someone that I need to speak to about sin in their life? Or is there someone that's spoken to me that's given me direction that I'm not listening to? Heavenly Father, we ask... We ask that you send your Holy Spirit right into this moment. In this, in this moment, convict our hearts. Help us understand. 
the gravity of this, the importance of this, the value and the care and the love of what it means to speak in honesty and grace and truth to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are allowing sin to ruin the relationship with you, relationship with those around them and the name of the gospel. May we love each other by being obedient to your word and following you. We ask this in your name. Amen.